All right, fellas, loaded show tonight. We've got a fantastic guest on the way. Also got some news to talk about from the world of Star Wars, which is always a fun topic for us. Uh, we got Dude Mail, we got White Flag, going to be a full show. So, uh, But real quick, I did want to kind of get our thoughts in on El Camino. That dropped on Netflix since last we recorded. We plugged it a lot. We've all been we all been big Breaking Bad fans for a long, long, long time, so we were looking forward to this. So I did want to real quick get your thoughts on that. Dave, I'll start with you. El Camino, man, did you like it? You know, I was a bit disappointed. I was hoping for a bit more fleshed out story, something with a little more to it. Okay. Uh, I mean, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, overall, you know, I, I'd give it probably a B minus C plus. Okay. Scott El Camino, what'd you think? I'm right there with you, Dave. I thought at times it was uh, a little slow. Um, seemed to miss on some uh, some story points, and um, it was a, it was a fun watch. I, you know, but uh, it's, I'm not going to line up to watch it again anytime soon. Fair enough. Yeah, I'm kind of right there with you. Uh, I will go so far as to say, though, that I, I did like it upon giving it a second viewing. I liked it a bit more than the first. Um, I think I just needed to kind of adjust my mindset. I was looking for, I think, something novel to really add something to Breaking Bad, and this didn't really do that. At the end of the day, for me, this felt more like uh, when you've seen the theatrical cut of a movie, and then you go back after time and watch a director's cut that's got a bunch of extra footage. The extra stuff just kind of adds to what was already there and complements what you love to begin with. It didn't really change the game in any way, shape, or form, and I'm ex- I'm glad that's exactly the way that they went. Um, so I thought it was a nice fitting into Aaron Paul's character. Still leaves the ending of Breaking Bad perfectly intact, which we all loved and uh, did some nice things. So, all right, El Camino, folks, check it out. Let's get to the show. Now entering the nexus of geekery and guy world in three, two, one, mark. Hello, IT. Have you tried turning it off and on again? This is the Dudes in Hyperspace podcast, a service of Shark Flight Publishing. Hey everybody, welcome back for episode 10 of the Dudes in Hyperspace podcast. I am your host, Ian J. Malone, joined as always by my good friends Dave Daniel, Scott Esther. Going to get to those guys in just a second. But before we do that, you know the spiel, the ways you can find us. We are online at dudesinhyperspace.com. We also do the social media thing at Facebook and Twitter, at the Hyper Dudes. We'll get you there for either one of those. Uh, if you want to hit us up with a question, drop them into the comments. Hashtag us at hashtag DudeMail. You can also even email us if you're old school, like, a, like the old farts that we are. We go for that too. Dudes in hyperspace at gmail.com. So, uh, fellas, lots of stuff to get to this evening. Going to be a fun show. Got a great guest, but real quick and in a hurry, what's been going on with y'all? Scott, actually, I want to start with you. You've been on the injury list, man. How you feeling? So I've been, uh, I'm doing all right. You know, a little bit of, a little bit of work travel. You know, you always pick up a little, little bit of the funk if you spend too much time on the airplane. So, uh, good to be back. Good to, uh, to hear you guys voices again and, uh, ready to do this. Cool deal. Dave, how's things down in Florida, man? Uh, I got hashtagged over the weekend, and it was uh, it was pretty nice, actually. You, you got ha- hashtag. Do I need context that, to be able to understand what that means? That is what you were talking about, right? When the, you hash- get, the hashtags? Uh, somebody hashtagged no? you with a dude mail? No. Like, okay. Well, I guess we're obviously not talking about the same thing here. So, hey, my weekend was great. How was yours? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, yeah, we're professionals. It's what we do. Mm-hmm. We've done this before. So weekend was good. We uh, we pretty well just hung around the house. The weather was absolutely gross on Sunday, which was perfectly fine because we had nowhere to be. I made a giant-ass pot of vegetable beef soup that cooked for about six, seven hours. 
a couple of cold ones turned on the race and really just gave myself the day off so it was it was a beautiful thing but uh, all right as teased at the outset we are not alone this evening we bring ourselves a guest this is a guy that listeners of this podcast probably know quite well you've seen him around at cons he's uh, quite the celebrity as it were he is a teller of tales a writer of wrongs a defender of ladies virtues some even call him maurice for he speaks from the pompatus of love. That is right. He is, of course, the epic award-winning best-selling author of the Black Knight Chronicles. He's also the guy behind the Quincy Harker series and the wildly hilarious Bubba the Monster Hunter. I am, of course, speaking of the one, the only, Mr. John G. Hartness. Welcome to the show, my friend. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate you uh, letting me come spend some time with you this evening. Uh, pleasure's all ours, man. I uh, I figure if nothing else, it gives us both an opportunity to plug our new book that we are both in. That's so, right. Uh, that's right. Timing, synergy. It's a thing. All of those things. For those who follow us on social media, you know that uh, I was just in a new anthology that came out in Kevin Steverson's Salvage Title Universe uh, called Salvage Conquest, Tales from the Salvage Title Universe. And my good friend, Mr. Hartness here, also contributed a story. So uh, that was a good yeah. time. That was a fun one to be a part of. I was super excited. Um, Chris Kennedy, who runs the press that put that out, uh, you know, creatively entitled Chris Kennedy Publishing. Chris <laughs> and I are good friends for quite a while, and we've been trying to come up with a project to work together on. And most of what they produce and are known for is military science fiction. Yep. Well, I don't do that. <laughs> I do most more Zoom Zoom Pew Pew space opera stuff. Or, you know, fart jokes and explosions. <laughs> but I read the salvage title books from Kevin earlier this year, and I was like, I love these. Yeah. And I was at, I guess I was at Liberty Con, and I was talking to Chris and said, hey, I love these books. He said, well, we're doing an anthology. You want to do a story? Sure, no problem. I don't have anything else going on. <laughs> this is why I should not be allowed out unsupervised. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, for those who don't follow John, he's kind of one of those guys who's pretty much putting something out every time you turn around. Yeah, and I hadn't done short fiction in quite a while before this year. So, of course, this year I started off with a story in the Jordan Con Charity Anthology, and then I followed that up with this story in Chris's anthology. Then coming out later this month, I've got a story in the Predators in Petticoats anthology from Prospective Press. Then I've got to still turn in stories for uh, Zombies Need Brains anthology and a Bane Books charity anthology. And in April, I've got a story in Fantastic Hope coming from Penguin, which is edited by Laurel K. Hamilton and William McCaskey. So I hadn't done an anthology in like five years, and this year I've done six of them. Nice. The phrase one-legged man in a butt-kicking contest comes to mind. Oh, son, you ain't lying. My <laughs> God. That's on top of the, I don't know, I've released like four novels this year. Right. A couple of novellas. I have at least two more novels that have to be written this year, one of which has to be released. And I run a publishing company. Yeah, we're going to get to all of that, actually. <laughs> so, well, let's start from the top. Sure. You're a professional writer. How did that happen? Oh, good God. Uh, who knows? <laughs> so say we all, my friend. You know, the funny thing about being a writer and really any kind of career in the arts, there's a couple of things. 
One, you find any 10 professional writers and you ask them how it happened for them, and you're going to get at least 13 different stories about how it happened. And writing, acting, music, dance, any of those artistic endeavors, your professionalism is not defined by your revenue. You can be absolutely as professional as the person at the top of the New York Times bestseller list and only publish two stories a year and still have a great day job. Yeah. Now, I do make my living writing. Um, I've been very fortunate in that regard, but it didn't come quick and it didn't come easy. Yeah, I was going to say, looking at your career, man, you you tapped on the arts just a second ago. You've done a little (laughs) of all of that. I mean, you've been an actor, you've worked in lighting, you've been uh, been a designer, you've been a theater director. I mean, you've done a little of everything. So what, what was it out of all of that that drilled you down eventually toward writing? When I was a kid, all I wanted to be was a writer. And when I went to college, I was an English major for a little bit. Then I found theater, and their parties were way better. So I changed majors. I 100% changed majors because the parties were better. <laughs> um, and then I moved into a career in theater, and then I, I ran a small theater. I designed well over 100 productions. I directed. I produced. And then I found poker. And Texas Hold'em poker is responsible for my writing career. That's that's a new one. I've never heard Texas Hold'em poker given as the answer as to how somebody became a professional writer. But uh, this this so, won't surprise anybody who knows you. By the way, your sense of humor is pretty legendary for that. But, so yeah. here's here's the journey. Uh, I don't remember if it was ninety nine or two thousand, but somewhere around there, I was at home at my parents' house uh, for Thanksgiving. And we had all just stuffed ourselves because we're all fat Southern people. And we're sitting in the living room about to slip into a food coma. Nobody wants to watch the Cowboys and Lions play. So we were flipping across ESPN and I see this World Series of Poker on ESPN. And I've never watched anybody play poker before because I was like, why would I watch somebody play cards? But I did. And this kind of schlubby-looking redneck from Tennessee named Chris Moneymaker won a million dollars playing poker. And I thought, well, if that redneck can do it, this redneck ought to be able to do it. I remember Chris Moneymaker. The shades, the hat, the visor. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember. That was in the heyday of uh, like when they ran poker in primetime on ESPN. Yeah, he started the whole thing, and they even mm-hmm. called it the Moneymaker Effect. Because he was the perfect catalyst. Because he was he was an accountant. He paid forty bucks to get in an online poker tournament and won his way into the World Series of Poker main event and won a million dollars. Yeah. It did exactly what everyone hoped it would do. It inspired idiots like me to learn to play poker and lose a lot of money. <laughs> well, I started reading blogs about people who write poker so I could kind of learn more about the game. And I wanted to play in some of these private tournaments that the poker bloggers that I was reading were having. But the only way you could get in is if you wrote a poker blog. I didn't have a blog. So I started one just so I could get in these poker tournaments. Then I wrote on that poker blog every day for about five years. And by the time five years rolled around, None of us had really gotten very good at playing poker, 
but we got really good at writing about it. So we started getting hired by the different poker reporting sites to cover tournaments. And my gig for four years with the World Series of Poker was I got up early in the morning before I went to my day job and I took all of the live blogs from the day before in a poker event and condensed them into a thousand word feature article for the website. And they paid me a pile of money for that. Nice. And yeah, it was great. So I did that for about four years. Then I had an argument with my editor. The argument was over a deadline. She thought I had one and I didn't. She won that argument. (laughs) And I decided that, well, I'll show her. I'll write the great American novel. And I accomplished two thirds of that. I am an American and I did indeed write a novel. Its greatness is subjective. (laughs) But I wrote a book. I had never written long form fiction before. Never really thought about it. But I sat down and wrote a book. And then I was like, well, what the hell do I do with it now? Right. So I did just like what I did with poker. I went on the internet and learned about publishing. And then I realized that that takes a long time. Well, I'm not a patient man. So I self-published my first book in 2009. All right. And 10 years and 22 novel-length works later, here we are. There you go. Hey, man, that was an interesting time in publishing right around that 2009, 2010 marker. Oh, yeah. my God. It was Amazon. West. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember Mako went, my first book went live a couple of years after that when, when we were still kind of in that climate. And mm-hmm. I, I blinked one morning and woke up and I, you know, had moved 150 some odd copies. I was just like, yeah. whoa, what is this that we're doing here? I know, right? I was the same way. And then looking back on it, I realized that if I had published the book six months earlier instead of spending a year doing research i would have already had a book out when a lot of people were in the right place at the right time to catch lightning in a bottle and make a bucket of money so i missed that opportunity but you know things have worked out okay well john i I gotta ask uh i mean obviously you're known for your humor in your books uh is that somehow i mean did it come from something you watched growing up? Is it just something you've developed over time? Or where, where exactly does the humor come from? And just as a secondary question, what did you watch growing up? Because it seems pretty eclectic. <laughs> well, I come from a family of smart alecks. My whole family, we're a snarky, smart alecky, quick-witted crowd. It was always a gauntlet whenever anybody would bring a new girlfriend or boyfriend home for Thanksgiving. Because if you survive that meal with us, all right, you've got thick enough skin to stick around. And that probably had a lot to do with it. And as far as what I watched growing up, um, a lot of MASH. Me and my dad would sit and watch MASH. Um, A lot of pro wrestling. And then just what was on TV in the 80s. Knight Rider, the old Battlestar Galactica watched the Star Trek original series on reruns. Now, I lived out in the country, so we didn't get cable until, well, we got a satellite when I was in high school. So there was no HBO or anything when I was growing up, and no MTV, ever. Do, do you think that some of that uh, some of that, that kind of snarky dialogue and stuff that you have going on, though, came from wrestling when it, you know, the, the promos going through? Or, I mean, where do you think that came from on the other end? Probably. There's there's definitely some Dusty Roads going on in some of my dialogue, and also a lot of it comes from theater. Having read 
a lot of plays and dissected the way that people talk to each other in plays has really helped me write dialogue. Um, David Mamet is hilarious once you get into the cadence of what he's saying. And the same with Sam Shepard. Those guys write amazing dialogue, and reading so much of that kind of... I picked it up by osmosis. I wasn't reading with intent for analyzing the writing, but I read so much of it I couldn't help it. Sure. Well, that actually segues nicely into into the next question that I had for you, which was when it came time to pick genres, you talked about how you write space opera, and then obviously you do lots of the urban fantasy stuff with the Quincy Harkers and the Bubba's and, and, and that variety. What was it about those genres that drew you to it? Why write in that area? Oh, I just started writing what I liked to read. There you go. I, I got into writing urban fantasy because I was reading Jim Butcher and Kim Harrison and Laurel K. Hamilton, and I was watching True Blood, and I was like, okay, right. I can tell some of these stories. The Black Knight Chronicles came about because I was watching season one of True Blood, and there was an episode where Lafayette goes to meet this guy who's a vampire, and he shows up, and it's this pudgy, pasty, 40-something-year-old vampire. And I'm thinking, yeah, there should be more fat vampires. Because, <laughs> I mean, you look at me, and I'm a big old boy. And then you look at somebody like Vampire Bill from True Blood. Well, he's awful skinny. If I'm a vampire, the fat guy's got more going on. And it's probably better marbled, like a good old ribeye. <laughs> so I'm going to have more blood, it's going to taste better, and I'm going to be easier to catch. So there should logically be more fat vampires. And that's where Black Knight Chronicles came from. I was like, well, if he's fat, standard comedy trope is he's got a tall, skinny friend. So, you know, Laurel Hardy, Abbott and Costello, all that. Right. And then I was like, well, what kind of people are they? And I've always been a comic book nerd, so I was like, okay, well, write what you know. Sure. Fat nerds. How did uh, how did Bubba come around? <laughs> so, more than once, I've been asked if Bubba the Monster Hunter is a spinoff of Larry Correa's Monster Hunter International series, which is not at all the case. Okay. But, in a very different way, Larry Correa is part of the inspiration for Bubba the Monster Hunter. When I went to Dragon Con in 2011, I met Larry for the first time. And he hands me this lime green hat with a Monster Hunter International logo on it and says, here, we're doing a flash mob. We're going to get a pile of people to wear these hats and do a flash mob. And I was like, thanks for the hat. I'm never putting this on my head. <laughs> but then I thought about it and I was like, you know... If anybody would hunt monsters, it would be this giant of a man right? who's a firearms instructor for decades. I was like, that guy would hunt monsters. Right. But he'd be funnier if he were a redneck. <laughs> right. So I took the size of Larry Correa and the look of a guy that I used to do rock and roll shows with back in the 90s named Dr. Nick. And Dr. Nick looked like every guy who was ever on Sons of Anarchy. Okay. The long braided ponytail, 
the long beard, the pile of tattoos, and he was a solid 6'8 and 350 if he was an ounce. And that's where Bubba came from physically. Right. So then I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to call him Bubba the Monster Hunter, well, it's pretty easy to come up with a plot. Let's hunt a monster. And then, again, comedy is frequently all about the opposites. So if I'm going to have a giant white redneck with a huge gun, his sidekick should be a skinny African-American gay man who's good with computers. And that's how Skeeter came about. And then I added a love interest because rednecks need love too. There you go. Yeah, no, I loved everything about that character. Um, my wife was actually the one who who pointed me toward it just because of the cover of the first book, which is Waffle House, is it not? <laughs> the title is Scattered, <laughs> Smothered, and Chunked. There you go. So, uh, yeah, I, I picked that up off of Audible, I want to say, after I ran into you at Congregate a couple of years okay. back and checked it out and had an absolute blast with it. There was so much about that character that I resonated with. And if memory serves, the next time I saw you at a Logicon, we had a whole conversation about the state of modern-day pro wrestling and country music. So, yeah, because uh, I will wax poetic about both of those things for a long time if you let me. Yep, that's a lot of beers material right there. Oh, you ain't even lying. So, well, cool deal. So that kind of tells us a little bit about your your writing. Yep. Not a whole lot of people really want to pull the trigger and go full bore as a publisher. It takes a very special <laughs> type of individual to want to take that on. Twenty sixteen looking for is insane. That 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 too. So the year is twenty sixteen. You partner up with some folks to create Falstaff books. Talk to me about how that happened. So. I have a bad habit of opening my mouth and sticking my foot in it up to the knee. Middle of 2015, I was at Con Carolinas, and a couple of good friends of mine had a novel that they had been shopping around for a couple of years, and I had read an early version of it, and I'd kind of championed this book with a couple of agents that I had had contact with, and with my publisher for the Black Knight Chronicles, Bellbridge Books, but they just weren't getting any traction. So they come up to me and they say, we think we're just going to self-publish this book. And I look them in the face and say, please, God, don't do that. Now, remember, at the time, I was purely self-published. Right. And I said, please, God, don't do that. And they said, why? Because you two would be the least successful self-published authors I've ever known. They're both great writers and good editors also. But neither one of us... One of them is particularly strong on social media and self-promotion. And they're both tenured professors at universities. Ah, uh, okay. So neither one of them has a whole lot of time to learn promotion. Right. Or really interest in doing it. So I explained that to them. They're like, well, yeah, you're probably right. So I said, hey, look, all right, here's the deal. Keep shopping it till the end of this year. If you haven't sold it by the end of the year, I'll publish the damn thing. I get an email mid-December that says, so did you mean it? <laughs> and I did. I did mean it. So that's how Falstaff started was I saw a project from a couple of friends of mine that wasn't getting the traction that I felt like it deserved. And I wanted to put it out there and make it available. You're spot on when you say that to be an indie now more than ever 
you have to be a shameless self-promoter. To be a writer, period, you got to be a shameless self-promoter. But yeah. particularly to be an indie, um, you, you have no chance because there's so much noise in the marketplace that to cut through, you've got to find a unique voice. And that requires mastering the skills that you talk about. So that's when traditional publishing is a nice place to be to have that help. No, it's absolutely correct. And Falstaff is a very small press. We have one employee and a bunch of contracted people. Um, small presses serve a couple of different roles. And one of the roles that we serve is we're not supposed to teach you how to write a book. You better know that before you get to us. But we can help you learn how to be a published writer. We can help you get on panels at conventions, learn how to run a table at a convention, how to just talk to other writers, how to help lift each other up, how to start a newsletter, how to do these things that there is no real training program for, although I'm working on that, and we can touch on that a little later too. So that's one of the roles that small presses really serve. The other role that we serve, and I've been really lucky in this regard, is that four experienced, established writers who are multiple traditionally published authors we serve as a home for their misfit projects. Their project that doesn't fit with what their other publishers see them as writing. Well, I'm up for it. Let's go. Chris Jackson has published a couple dozen tie-in novels and self-published some horror novels. And Chris is a fantastic writer, been around for quite a while. And yes, Chris, if you're listening, I did just call you old. But... Chris comes to me a couple of years ago and says, hey, I've got a novel that's finished, but the press that I was going to publish it through went under. You want to take a look at it? I was like, let's see. You've got 20-something novels under your belt. Right. You're a regular on the convention circuit. Yeah, I think I'm good. Let's take a look at it. The first one is called Dragons of Boston. It came out back in the summer at Con Carolinas. The second will be out next June. It's going to be a great trilogy for us. Awesome. But that's the other kind of thing that a small press can do, is we can provide that avenue to publication for the thing that some traditional presses don't want to pick up. Cool stuff, man. Well, that's actually really insightful for a lot of people to know. Um, you mentioned that you're doing a training thing now. What is that all about? I know you're on Patreon. I know you've got some different places where people can go and learn from you, but you know, formally and for the record, how exactly does that work if people want to get involved with that? So there's two main things that I've got going on. I do a fairly regular YouTube video series called 10 things I hate about your writing. Okay. Where I go over some of the most common mistakes I see in submissions. Either the book may start in the wrong place, the writing may use too many copulas, and then I have to explain what copulas are because nobody teaches you what those are. And I'm not going to say it here because I want people to go watch the videos. Um, (laughs) Fair enough. I also give reports from conventions and background on conventions and that's a pretty regular series of videos that i post on the falstaff books youtube channel but coming up in march in charlotte falstaff books is producing a professional development conference for genre fiction writers 
So for people who want to get published or want to self-publish and hone their craft, we've got a whole string of presentations by professional writers. We also have a set of presentations on the business side. So for people who want to learn how to sell more books or be more productive or lay out a better looking book, we've got a series of workshops for that. It's patterned a little after Kevin J. Anderson's Superstars of Writing series, okay. where he brings in folks like Jonathan Mayberry and Jim Butcher and Brandon Sanderson, and you go somewhere out west, I don't remember where, maybe Phoenix, but don't hold me to that, mm -hmm. and you spend a few days with those guys learning. Well, there's nothing like that on the East Coast, so I built one. Okay. And I'm bringing in Richard Cadry, who created the Sandman Slim series, Mary Mancusi, who writes middle grade for Disney, Faith Hunter, who's a New York Times bestselling urban fantasy author, David B. Coe, who's an award-winning epic fantasy author, A.J. Hartley, who's a New York Times bestselling thriller and fantasy author, Chris Kennedy, who we talked about, is yep. going to come and talk about business. Quincy Allen, who for a couple of years handled all of the interior layouts for Wordfire Press, is going to teach book layout and design. Deb Dixon, who's the publisher of Bellbridge Books, is going to teach her goal, motivation, and conflict half-day workshop. So my goal in hiring faculty for this event is to get people, is to get enough good people that I'm not qualified to teach at my own conference. Fair enough. So what is the conference called and where can people find out about it? The conference is called Saga. Okay. And you can go to sagaconference.com or you can link to it from the Falstaff Books website. All right. Well, speaking of Falstaff, I do want to kind of kick back there and circle mm -hmm. back to them and get back to the fun stuff, which is the fiction. You mentioned sure. the Jackson trilogy. What yeah. else is going on at Falstaff these days that is exciting, whether it's your work, whether it's the work of some of your other authors that people ought to know about? Well, we just came back from the Multiverse Convention in Atlanta, which was great because not only did, was Chris a guest there, Darren Kennedy was a guest there, and we've got his Fugue and Fable trilogy. We're going to be releasing Queen's Peril, which is the sequel to his book Pawn's Gambit. It'll come out either very late this year or very early in 2020. Stuart Jaffe, who was a guest at Multiverse, is going to be doing a trilogy of high fantasy detective novels coming out in 2021. We're going to rapid release those. It'll be three novels, one each month across the summer. Okay. We just released the fifth and final book in the Withrow Chronicles by Michael G. Williams, some hilarious vampire comedy stuff. We just signed the contract for David B. Coe's book that'll come out next year. It's called Time's Assassin. It is the third book in his Isle Vale cycle. The first two were published by Angry Robot, and we picked up the third. Wow. And I'm, I'm ecstatic to have David doing a book for us. And we've got a couple other people that were, the ink's not dry on the contracts yet that are also, that are equally as exciting. So we're cooking right along. This year, I think we're on pace to do 50 or 60 titles and we're probably going to do that many again next year wow 
Good grief alive. That's, that's a lot. Yeah. So, well, I can't let you run down that roster and not tell me what's going on with Quincy Harker, man. Ever okay. since I heard about that series, I picked up book one. Absolutely loved it. For those who have never heard of this, think Harry Dresden, but with a vampire twist and a lot saltier. This guy is, you think I'm jaded people. <laughs> this guy is, uh, he is something. But, he's a uh, lot older than you, too. So he does have some years some on stuff. me. Yeah, he has. So, But great character. What's happening in the world of Harker these days? Well, for the first four years I was writing Quincy Harker, I was doing them as linked novellas. So I would release a 30,000-word novella every three months. Then at the end of the year, I'd collect it, and I'd do Harker year one, year two, year three, and year four. This year, I flipped the script, and I'm releasing two Quincy Harker novels. Okay. The first one, book five, was called Carl Perkins Cadillac, and it came out in late June. And the currently untitled book six should come out in December. And it's been a lot of fun to be able to stretch the narrative into a different form. Because when you're constrained by that 30,000 word novella length, Mm-hmm. Your descriptions have to be tighter. Your your introspective scenes have to be shorter. I've really enjoyed working in a longer form. I think book five is the best of the Harker series so far, and every all of them are available: hardcover, paperback, ebook, and audio. That was another exciting thing. Tantor Media has picked up the audio for Harker, so that means that they can. The audiobooks produce more quickly, and I get a little money up front, which is always nice. Oh, yeah, no doubt. Well, for those uh, who don't want to take my word on it, we can also get a, uh, a vote of confidence on the Harker series from none other than uh, Guinan herself, Whoopi Goldberg, who picked this as what was it, one of her favorite uh, books of the year on The View last year? Yeah, last year she featured the Harker series as one of her top gift ideas under $50, and uh, that was awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's not often that a mid-list fantasy author gets their work in front of three million people on The View. Sure. And she just happened to stumble across the audio. Wow. And, you know, also, I was able to land another kind of, another famous fan of that series, which ties into other stuff we're going to talk a little bit about. I got a DM one time from none other than Paul White. Oh, WWE champ, the big show. <laughs> All righty. Well, you know what? Let's just jump right into that. How did, <laughs> how did that happen? We can talk wrestling. Folks who listen to the show know that. All right. Well, in addition to writing and running a publishing company, I do a podcast called Authors and Dragons, where along with five other idiots, I play Dungeons and Dragons really badly every okay. two weeks. And we record a spectacularly not safe for work podcast and it's D comedy okay so i was watching the wizards of the coast stream of many eyes which is a three-day event that they do and i saw joe manganella from true blood was playing D live in front of an audience with the big show and i was like well this ought to be entertaining so i watched it i thought the big show was hilarious and i sent out a tweet that said hey just watched at wwe big show on stream of many eyes 
we need to get him on Authors and Dragons because he was the funniest thing on the show. A few minutes later, I get a notification on my phone that says, Paul White followed you on Twitter. I was like, somebody spoofed the Big Show's account. That's funny. <laughs> and then I noticed that there's a little blue check mark by the name at WWE Big Show. And I was like, huh, that's cool. The Big Show's followed me on Twitter because I mentioned him. That's fun. And then I get a DM that says, hey, man, thanks for the shout out. I'm a big fan. Then, <laughs> LOL, obviously I'm a big fan. <laughs> so, of course, being, you know, smooth... I tweeted him back, wait, what? You're a fan of me? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he says, yeah, I just got on Twitter to follow my favorite writers. And he sends me a screen cap of his phone where he's currently listening to a Harker audiobook on the plane. Awesome! Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, damn. Because I remember watching the big show when he was the giant in WCW. WCW, yeah. When he very first appeared and won the world championship on his first televised match. Yep. So that was super cool for me to have some somebody who I'd watched for 25 years say that they liked the work I did. I mean, yeah. obviously it was, it was also incredibly cool when I got that email from Whoopi and I might have made her send me proof of life because i didn't believe it was really her <laughs> well we could sit around here all day long and talk about old school professional wrestling that is not a problem but it's interesting that we're doing this interview now because we're in a we're in a wild time for pro wrestling and it's been a while since we've been able to say that there's lots oh, going on you've got wwe now on fox you've got aew in full swing back on tnt we've got a wednesday night war with dynamite versus nxt i mean it's you still got impact floating around out there you know as a guy who's followed this stuff for for years and years and years what are your thoughts on what's happening in wrestling right now man the last time it was this good to be a wrestling fan it was another century <laughs> Okay. I mean, you've got WWE with the with a roster that is so stacked they can't use half the people they've got hired. Right. They've just got that much talent. You've got AEW with incredible talent. You've got New Japan selling out 20,000 seat arenas in the US. Right. You've got Ring of Honor doing some great stuff. You've still got Impact hanging out. The NWA is relevant again. With Billy Corgan, of all people. Yeah, the dude from Smashing Pumpkins is now all about smashing heads. Yeah, no doubt. I saw a great interview with him when he, uh, not long after he bought that company and I asked him why. He's like, I went to NWA shows with my dad when I was, was you know, for as long as I can remember. When I was yeah. a little kid, that's the brand that I grew up with. And I know we're probably never going to challenge for big time supremacy in the business, but this brand should be relevant again. It should it have a is. rightful place. And that's what I'm doing. I mean, God bless them, but let's try not to put the Rock and Roll Express in Maine storylines anymore because <laughs> because you really right about the time that they start sending you social security checks you should not be on the active roster yeah no but i, I mean i was gonna make a joke about an aarp card and then i remembered how old chris jericho is and i shut my mouth yeah <laughs> he still is million dollars on the mic though man there are a few people out there that can still hang with them on a mic hell he's He's still at 75% of his in-ring prime. Yeah. 
Jericho. Still waiting for him to do the truffle shuffle on the air, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Chris Jericho has absolutely moved into my top three or four of all time with the work he's put in the last five years. I'm super excited about AEW. Yeah. They've got so many fantastic characters. Darby Allen is an incredible character. Orange Cassidy, that guy's hilarious. Right. First time I saw him, I was like, what the F is this? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they... then I watched the match. Then the bell rang, and I was like, he's incredible. Yep. No, they've got some good stuff happening in AEW. I think it's different yeah. enough that it's going to carve out its own niche. I think it seems to bring the goods where the in-ring product is is concerned. But I love the fact that they're not requiring these guys to script their own to script promos. They get to oh, do it yeah. themselves and have some some input over what their character is going to be. And for my money, that's what led to the downfall of the WWE. I know they still I bring agree. in a lot of numbers, but I don't watch it anymore, and that's why. Because every time I turn it on, for all of the talent that they have over there, I feel like. Like I've, it's the reboot culture in pro wrestling. Yeah. I've seen every person on that roster in another incarnation somewhere. Absolutely. I mean, AEW has got Maxwell J. Friedman, who is the best heel in wrestling today. He was the best thing on their premiere episode a couple of weeks ago for me. I tweeted that out, yeah. actually. I was like, this guy's money. They, they need this guy front and center. He's got the yeah. goods. He is the only person I've seen in the past 10 years play a heel that good as The Miz. Yeah. And then they turned him babyface and whatever. Now nobody cares. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, uh, I will close this little topic with, with this question. If you could pick three guys right now in pro wrestling, active, active duty guys right now, WWE, AW, New Japan, whatever, you're going to start your own promotion. President Hartness, who are the three guys you're taking with you to launch your brand? Adam Cole. Okay. Maxwell J. Friedman. <sighs> Ricochet. Well, on that note, my friend, I think we're going to draw this little session to a close. It has been a pleasure chatting with you. Before we let you go, though, tell folks where they can find you, whether it's on the web, whether it's on social media, where are the best places to catch up with John G. Hartness? I've got a Facebook group, which is John G. Hartness Books. Uh, My professional Facebook page is facebook.com slash John G. Hartness. My Twitter is at John Hartness. My Instagram, which is largely useless, is at John Hartness. johnhartness.com falstaffbooks.com sagaconference.com I try not to do anything terribly original with my social media handles and then every two weeks you can listen to me on the Authors and Dragons podcast with five of the best indie comedy fantasy and science fiction writers you'll ever hear Awesome stuff. Well, folks, go check him out. As you can tell by this interview, he is a most colorful individual, and I can promise (laughs) you that definitely bleeds through on his characters, whom you will thoroughly enjoy. So, John, thanks again for coming on, brother, and we will have you again sometime soon. Thank you all so much for having me. I appreciate you spending time with me. And now the news. All right, folks. So in case you've been living under a rock, the final trailer for Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker dropped last night with Monday Night Football. And uh, that was a good thing because, well, the ball game was absolutely garbage. But uh, a lot of folks were watching for this. Uh, Mainly they were watching to see how this would impact ticket sales because pre-sales went on uh, went online last night for people to go buy and given what happened with the last jedi and the division in the fan base over all that uh, there were a lot of eyeballs on the sales numbers for this one 
And wouldn't you know it, Star Wars hits it out of the park. According to Slash Film and the ticket tracker, AdamTickets.com, in the first hour of pre-sales, Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker outpaced Avengers Endgame by 45%. So they are going to make mad freaking cash off of this money. Uh, Star Wars Rise of Jedi, of course, concludes the Skywalker saga, stars Daisy Ridley, John Boyega, Oscar Isaac, and others, and arrives in theaters December 20th. So everybody's had a chance to see the trailer. You can go find it on our Facebook page and Twitter feed if you have not. You guys are both diehard Star Wars fans, so this is the final trailer. It's the last thing we're going to get before the movie drops in December. Dave, I'll start with you. Go ahead, man. What do you think? <laughs> I find it incredibly hard not to get excited whenever something Star Wars comes on. No matter what has happened with the last two movies, I just find it incredibly hard not to get excited. So it's I'm holding back. I still want to want to you know keep some of that in reserve, but uh, it definitely looked good to me. All right, Scott? Yeah, I thought it was uh, an awesome trailer. Got to be really excited about the film. And since this is the only thing I'm going to get to watch between now and the theater release, then um, that, that's all I got to work with. Um, like the the fact that it spent a little more time in the storytelling uh, instead of like full full on action, I think we're going to get a better look and uh, an idea of, of what the story they're going to try to tell in this last uh, iteration of it. Yeah, no, I only agree. It's uh, well, final trailers do typically give you a little bit more to work with, and this was certainly the case. Um, I, you know, I would have liked a little bit more of a of a hint as to what the story is going to be, but. Yeah, J.J. Abrams has a reputation for liking to play it pretty close to the uh, vest with regard to that sort of thing. Um, One thing I did like about it, and I found this out after the fact, a lot of the look of some of the set pieces, particularly the the Palpatine throne with like the spikes coming off of it, I don't know if that's supposed to be ice or whatever, that is actually a shout-out to the original McQuarrie artwork for the Emperor's Throne and Return of the Jedi back in the early 80s. So, you know, J.J. is obviously a big fan and a big student of Star Wars and, and its early, earliest origins, and he wants to reflect that with this. So a lot of the set pieces and the stuff that's that's coming about actually came from early drafts and from early images of some of the art that was created. So uh, so that's very cool. Um, you know, I'm, I, again, it's all going to come down to story for me. Uh, you know, that's what I'm what I'm interested to see here. I get it. It's going to be a good-looking film. J.J. Abrams can make a great-looking film. I just want to know if he's going to tell me a good story because so far I haven't really gotten that in the new sequel trilogy. Um, you know, we'll we'll see. There's obviously tons there to tell you. This is the last one, evidenced by 3PO going, one more time to look at my friends, you know, blah, 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 blah. So, uh, so we'll see. I, I still walk into it with zero expectations. Um, I, I won't be heartbroken if I walk out and it's awful. I don't think I'll be over the moon if it's awesome. I'm certainly hoping for the latter, without a doubt. But uh, my expectations for Star Wars have definitely been tempered over the last few years. Any big takeaways from the trailer that specifically you're looking forward to seeing? I know a lot of people have pointed to what looks like Ray and Kylo slashing down the Darth Vader helmet. Um, other people have pointed to, you know, them going back to the Death Star. That was made clear in this. You see them in the in the trashed Emperor's throne room in the trailer. Um, you know, what were some of the images or things that really jumped out to you guys in this that you're looking forward to seeing on the twentieth? Oh, I'm really looking forward to the to the revisiting the Death Star. You know, I just it's not only is it nostalgic, but it's just going to be interesting to see how they can tie in the Emperor and what happens with all that. So I'm I'm definitely interested to see what they do with all that. All right, Scott. Yeah, for me, it's more. Uh, seeing how they tie in the character of the Emperor and as well as uh, how Luke plays a factor in uh, Ray's progression into the 
the Jedi arts. So, um, you know, I, I don't know that she's necessarily going to turn full Jedi, but she obviously has um, the struggle of, uh, of good and evil inside. So we'll see, see what happens there and see if uh, Luke's been able to mentor her while we've had this sort of break between films. I will say that is one thing that's going to be interesting about this. I believe I read that this is set five years after the events of The Last Jedi, and uh, that's a good thing. That's a very good thing, because one of the big gripes that a lot of people have had with the character of Rey is that she's a Mary Sue, and she really is when you get right down to it. I mean, if you track Force Awakens through the end of The Last Jedi, all of that takes place over the course of, what, not even a week? And she goes from having never even seen a lightsaber to being an absolute pro in the throne room with Kylo uh, there in, in Snoke's throne room. I mean, she just, you blinks and she's, she's awesome. So, um, you know, a lot of people didn't, didn't really think that was earned. So at least this way with there being time, she's had time to learn to study the, the wills journals, which you saw at the end of TLJ. Um, she's had a chance to come into her own naturally and practice and learn and perform and train. So now when she steps on the big stage for the final chapter, it makes a little bit more sense that she knows what she's doing. I'm actually kind of happy about that. So, all righty, fellas. Well, Scott, you are on the road heading home from soccer practice, so we're going to go ahead and turn you loose so I know you got the family stuff. Dave and I are going to field some dude mail questions, and we will roll out from there. Oh, Scott, real quick before I let you go, World Series picks, man. Who do you got? I've got the Astros and six. Astros and six. All right. Pitching the pitching. Uh, the big reason there? Yeah, pitching. And I, I don't know that the Nationals will have enough uh, bats to put out there to combat uh, what the Astros have. I mean, watching the watching the end of the, the Yankees-Astros series, uh, you know, seeing what they did to Chapman uh, in that last inning, uh, they've got too much. Yeah. Fair enough, fair so. enough. All right, brother, we'll drive safe, enjoy the rest of soccer practice, and I will catch you on the flip side. I think our next episode is going to be a little bit of a track back for college football, so it should be fun. Perfect. Sounds good. Take All care, man. guys. See ya. Dave, let's do some dude mail. You've got mail. Okay, dude mail question number one comes to our friend Alan. Hey, dudes, much has been made of the are comic book movies real films or not debate, thanks to the recent comments from Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola. Clearly, you guys are fanboys, but you're obviously uh, have an appreciation for quality filmmaking evidenced by your hot take review of Joker a couple of weeks ago. Time to weigh in. Comic book films, are they real movies or are they not? Thanks for your dude mail, or thanks for fielding my dude mail, and stay awesome. Thanks, Alan. Appreciate that. Uh, all right, Dave, I'll let you have first crack at this. Comic book movies, man, it's been a hot topic of debate lately in the press. They're crap movies, they're despicable, or no, they're modern-day works of art. What are your thoughts on this? I think they're both. Uh, I think you have some some comic book movies that are going to be a little bit in that direction where it's it's just to get a little pop out of it, to go through, to do some small things. And then you have your your epics, you have your Jokers, you have your Avengers Endgame that are that are movies. They're, they're works of art. They are great storytelling through and through. They just happen to have comic book characters in them. So I, yeah. I, it's a little bit of both. Yep. Now, I, I pretty much feel the exact same way. I think there are clearly movies where you can see the formula, all right, which is pretty much every movie one in a series from Marvel. I don't care if it's Thor, if it's Captain America, if it's Iron Man, if it's Captain Marvel, if it's Black Panther. A Marvel origin movie is a Marvel origin movie. You, you see the, you, they can crank those out of the factory now. Um, the Infinity Wars and the End Games, those are something else. Uh, what they were able to achieve in Endgame, that's not 
your typical comic book film. That's the conclusion to 10 years of storytelling. And I don't care mm-hmm. if you're writing books or if you're making movies or you're making television series or whatever, trying to end something after 10 years and land that plane effectively with that many threads to tie up, that is a Herculean effort. And that should not be, you don't crap on that. Um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think regular movies are the same way. Some, you know, the, the non-comic book variety are the same way. Francis Ford Coppola has made some fantastic films. Francis Ford Coppola also gave us The Godfather 3, which is the biggest turd in, in mafia movie <laughs> history. So, you know, I mean, there are swings and there are misses, whether it's, you know, comic book genre or otherwise. I don't think it's right to, you know, to, to pigeonhole the entire genre and just say, well, it's all crap. It's all theme park stuff because some of it's really not. So, uh, all right, good question there for Alan. That's kind of where we're at there. Next question, which I cannot find. Dave, read the next dude mail question. Save me here. All right, here we go. So, from Raheem. Yo, fellas, greetings from the Big Easy. Is it just me, or does a 10-hour dental marathon sound more appealing than watching FSU or Miami football these days? Don't get me wrong. As a Bama fan, I've got no dog in this fight, but I had to ask, what the hell happened? Stay cool and roll tide. Uh, first of all, Raheem, uh, thank you for listening, uh, but don't ever say Roll Tide on here again. We will find you, and we will throw Nick Saban at you. He's uh, not very big, so that's not hard to do. He's a, wee little, <laughs> he's a wee little man, Nick Saban. It'll look like Ray Mysterio getting thrown against the wall. <laughs> um, you know, yeah, yeah, it, it, I'd rather have dental work done at this point than watch my Hurricanes continue to play some days. Uh, I, I really have a feeling this game's going to end in a 2 nothing. Uh, score where uh, unfortunately some kicker will, will end up having a ball hiked over his head and it's the only way the other team's going to score. So uh, yeah, that's where I'm at with it. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm uh, Dave and I were actually having this conversation via text the other day. I'd swear I think Florida State Miami 2019 is going to be played on the CW at noon in front of a packed house of like 50 people. So, uh, you know, much has been made about Florida State and where we're at. We're not a good football team at all. And that starts from the top down at the head coach all the way down through the staff and the players. A lot, a lot, a lot of reasons, very complicated reasons for why that is. A lot of discussion swirling about Willie Taggart and his future at Florida State. Could he conceivably be fired after two years? Um, He could. I, I, I would say the likelihood of that even now is far lower than, uh, than than the likelihood of him sticking around for a year three. But it's not outside of the realm of possibility. And his performance, particularly on game days and the way he manages a, a, an a, a game from an X's and O's and a personnel standpoint, uh, very much begs that conversation to be had. So I think I actually have next question now, and I can read it. It's really, it's in front of me. Next question comes from Alicia. Uh, dude, mail question is for Ian. Okay, well, that's fitting that I'm reading this question. Uh, You said before that you have no interest in seeing Terminator Dark Fate. However, uh, early reviews seem to indicate that this is probably the best Terminator flick since T2. Does that change your mind or sway your decision on whether you'll see the film or not? Um, I mean, it doesn't sway my decision on whether I'll see it. I'm going to see it. It's just a matter of whether or not I'll spend the money to see it on the big screen, which probably still not. Uh, It's like I've said before. I'm just tired of the Terminator franchise. They've they it's it's a fool me once shame on on you, fool me twice shame on me kind of thing here. We got Terminator three, which was garbage, and then we heard oh we're gonna change it up, we're gonna go serious. It's gonna be Terminator Salvation. We've got Batman, was you know Christian Bale was coming off of Batman Begins. He was the big thing. You got Jeremy Ironside. We're gonna kick it back. We're gonna make it feel like Terminator again. 
And then Salvation came out, and it was, we're going to showcase the dude from Avatar as much as humanly possible with a horrible story. And it was awful. Um, then we're going to really change it up, and we're going to be Terminator Genesis. And we're really going to change the story. And you're not going to see this coming. Like, this is going to be time travel in a completely different way. And we've got Matt Smith from Doctor Who. And this is going to be awesome. You're going to love it. And it was awful. So just because James Cameron is on board and all that, fine. That's great. You got the director from Deadpool. I will see it at some point. But I've given that franchise enough of my money and been screwed by them enough that I'm just not, I don't trust them. Maybe a matinee if the movie comes out and it turns out to be decent. And I know some people who go see it and tell me personally, yeah, check it out. Maybe. But I just, I don't trust the Terminator franchise. So, uh, well, that said, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but uh, they have had some, some theaters that have gone back and shown T2 or the advertised showing T2 and had some fans come in as a revival. Yeah. And they were surprised by having this movie be the one that's shown so that they can go out and start talking about it and going through. And so far, even the ones that are not talking about critics, talking about fans that have, that have enjoyed the series, inspecting to go and see a movie that they really, really enjoyed in the past, getting the opportunity to go and see the new movie. And they really enjoyed it. Okay. Well, again, we'll, we'll see. Um, I'm just going to proceed with a whole lot of caution. Uh, like that girl that you've asked out multiple times and she's led you on and led you on and led you on and just never followed through with that date. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with Terminator. Sorry, guys. You can bring back Sarah Connor all you want. She's awesome. But, um, you know, I'm just uh, going to hold off on that and we'll see. All right. Last question comes from Chad. Hey, guys, back when Chris Kennedy was on the program, you picked Houston versus L.A. to face off in the World Series. Turns out it's the Strohs versus the Natties. Who wins and in how many games? Uh, I knew this one was coming. That's kind of why I wanted to get Scott's answer. But, Dave, who you got in this series? Uh, because Scott said uh, Houston, I'm going to go with the Nationals. Okay. And that is my entire that is my entire reason why I haven't watched baseball at all this year. So because <laughs> he said the Astros, I'm going to see the Nationals. The Astros are really stinking good, dude. I mean, they're uh, <laughs> they're they're pitching. He's not lying. Between Verlander and Granke and all those guys, I mean, they are they are smoking. Uh, I will take Houston in six with Scott, not because I'm going to side with my boy, but because I typically root against anything from the city of Washington, D.C. So (laughs) if you're asking me Texas versus Washington, I'm going to side with the Texans and say Ghost Rose. But, again, the pitching for Houston, as jokes aside, is just absolutely out of sight. So, uh, you know, that that tends to win out in these kind of things, even with a juiced baseball. Thanks, guys, for your questions. For Dude Mail is always a good time, and uh, and it's definitely because of you guys. So, time to fire it. We're getting down to the hour. Let's throw some white flag. White flag. Okay, white flag is the segment where we kind of talk about what's on our radar coming up in the next few weeks. Can be geek stuff, can be guy stuff, can be sports stuff, can be whatever. If it interests us and we're looking forward to it, then we like to talk about it. That's the gist, and it's the end of the show, hence white flag. Dave, what you looking forward to, man? Uh, I am looking forward to two things. Uh, one, I will be going to Indiana this weekend uh, with uh, with my girlfriend to hang out with her, her family, her friends a little bit. Uh, we get the chance to get a little bit of cool weather. Enjoy that. Uh, I don't get a whole lot of that down here in Florida. So looking forward to a couple of days down there. Having the week leading up to the Miami-Florida State game off from work. And then whether or not they're crappy or not, I'm looking forward to my uh, my Miami Hurricanes playing the Florida State Seminoles so I can uh, I can cheer on my orange and green. Yeah, I uh, I don't know if we'll get an opportunity to record before that game. 
uh, we will try, but we'll we'll have to wait and see. Anyway, yep, I'm kind of right there with you. Um, Florida State, Miami, uh, even with bad football teams, I mean, good grief, man. We're guys in our 40s from Florida. This is the rivalry that we grew up with. It's one of two for me. It's the University of Miami and the University of Florida. Those are the two games that every year, if I can pick two on the schedule to win and lose the rest, those are the two that I want to win. Um, they're rivalry games through and through. Uh, they are the reason why I love college football. It's the pageantry. It's the history. It's the tradition. It's just a great time. So, uh, yes, they are a lot more fun to watch whenever both teams are good. Sadly, neither team is good in this case. They're both garbage. But we're still going to watch. We're still going to root for them. You know, in my case, Florida State is my alum. You know, that's where I went to school. So, uh, so going to watch it and root for my Knowles. Other stuff I'm looking forward to, the NASCAR playoffs have pretty well been my salvation from college football season. Uh, you know, much has been made about NASCAR and how they crown their champion. A lot of hardcore purists absolutely despise this format. Uh, it is not the way to crown a season-long champion based off consistency by any stretch of the imagination. This is much more the NCAA basketball tournament type of a, a type of a playoff format for those who don't follow the sport. You start with 16 cars. You race three races. You cut off the bottom four finishers. You race three more. You cut off the bottom four. You race three more. You cut off the bottom four. And then your final four drivers shoot it out in a one-race winner-take-all shootout for the crown at the end of the year. I say all that to say it is high-octane. It is intense. It is stressful. It's a blast to freaking watch, just like the NCAA tournament. There are buzzer beaters. There are Cinderella stories. And it helps that my guy's one of the one of the badasses in the field. So that's great. At least I got something to pull for during the fall sports season. So that's it. Florida State, Miami, NASCAR playoffs. And uh, that's what's on my radar. So thank you again to John Hartness for coming on to the program. Thank you to Scott for coming by. Glad he's feeling a little bit better. We'll certainly get him back for the college football uh, midseason show here in a couple of weeks. And uh, thanks again to everybody who listens and follows the program. You can find us online, dudesinhyperspace.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at the Hyper Dudes. Shoot us emails, dudesinhyperspace at gmail.com. We're always open to suggestions. If there's somebody that you want interviewed, a topic you want us to cover, uh, something you want to address, by all means, shoot it our way. Hit us with a hashtag and email. Does not matter. Uh, we love to hear from you guys. So, Also, if you have an opportunity to leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, wherever, we really appreciate those. That's what helps drive the show up through the rankings for people to find it and, uh, and, and get discovered. When you cover geek stuff and sports stuff, that's a pretty niche audience. So uh, all the reviews we can get really, really does go a long way to helping people find us. So thanks again to everybody for coming by. It was a great show, and we will be back next time for Episode 11 of the Dudes in Hyperspace podcast. See you guys.